Hello, and welcome back to the Wheel Talk Podcast. My name is Abby Mickey, and I am joined by the lovely Lauren Rowney in a box. Oh, that's so sweet of you to call me lovely. Hello, everyone. It's good to be back. And Gracie Alvin, also lovely. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. (laughs) Every time I record an intro, I'm like, what are words? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's me trying to interview people. (laughs) whatever you're so good at that i've seen you interview people i feel like a duck that looks really graceful on the water but underneath i'm just like scrabbling <laughs> no you were you were really good at the tour this year no thank you was your, your i'm, I'm just saying how i feel <laughs> it sucks to be an introvert in an extrovert career huh? yeah yeah <laughs> yeah but funnily enough, like actually a lot of people in the media are introverts. So it's quite interesting once you kind of get into that world that you realize that most people have two sides to themselves. It's not that they're not being authentic, but it's just like you can sw- switch on and off and you definitely have to switch off to survive as well. All right. We're without Matt today. So that means that we're not going to talk about the Tour de France Femme of X-Swift, which like I know it's been a minute since the race, but I do. I still do think that there's things that... I want to talk about from there. So we, once we have everyone together, we will talk about that. Maybe it's an off season pod kind of recapping or something along those lines, but we're going to get there for now. We've got a bunch of transfer news, some EF stuff and the tour of Scandinavia coming up. Plus some listener questions. Before we dive into all those, this episode of the wheel talk podcast is brought to you by the members of the escape collective. If you've ever considered joining escape collective, now's your chance. We've got a ton of great content on the site, escapecollective.com, and you can join up, become a member, read all of the stories, get access to the Discord, which is the best part. I think we all agree. It's awesome having a little bit of a little bubble community over there to talk about bikes, music, kids, everything, food. There's just everything going on on the Discord. Sign up at escapecollective.com slash join. And thank you to everyone who's already a member. You make it possible for us to do what we do. Should we start with the transfers? It's that time of year, so we've had transfers rolling in, and I think the top of the transfer list is EF Tibco Silicon Valley Bank because the team, we finally got a little bit of clarity about what's going on over there at the EF camp, and the team as we know it will be folding at the end of the season. It's owned by Linda Jackson. She's been running this team since about 2008 with Tibco and Silicon Valley Bank as sponsors. It's been a a pillar of the U.S. cycling scene for many, many years, and a ton of incredible riders have gone through that program. Brody Chapman was part of that program. Allison Jackson was part of the Tibco program before it became EF. There's a a lot of riders that have been through there. and so it's a bummer to see the team fold and it, and definitely kind of a weird situation in which it's happened. Obviously, we talked earlier in the year about how the collapse of uh, Silicon Valley Bank impacted the team. And I think partially because of that, EF Education First decided that they also wanted to pull a sponsorship from that team. While they have the same kit and all the same equipment, it's two separate teams. Um they basically came on EF Education First, came on to sponsor Tibco Silicon Valley Bank in 2022, which helped them obtain the world tour license that they have now. And what's basically happened is EF was like, okay, well, we're not going to sponsor you, but we are going to start our own women's team. So EF Pro Cycling, the owners of the men's team, are starting a women's their own women's team separate from Linda Jackson, and that's EF Education Cannondale. So it's very confusing but I hopefully was that clear? Did that make sense to you guys? Yeah, <laughs> it did. I think as well, just when that news item came out this week, it was like, hold on, they just signed all these big riders and they're folding. But then once I read what was happening, I was like, okay, it's just, it's kind of like what happened with specialized Lululemon, which became Velocio Shram, that team folded, but then actually, you know, a lot of the management and all that went across and became Canyon Shram, which is now still standing. Um, so... And interestingly, there was Linda Jackson had a lot of non-compete slash non-solicitation clauses in the contracts of the riders and staff from EF Tibco SVB, but also for uh, EF Pro Cycling or EF Education First, I guess. So there was 
this weird thing going on behind the scenes of whether or not any of the riders that are currently contracted or currently riding for EF Education First, Hipco, Silicon Valley Blank. God, this is confusing. Any of the current team members would be able to move over to the new team. Um, but Linda said in her statement this week that since the team is folding and she's taking her world tour license with her to the grave, to the <laughs> team grave, <laughs> those riders and the staff that currently work for her are allowed to sign for the new team. We, She did say in the interview that she that four of the riders that are currently on the team have signed contracts with EF Pro Cycling, EF Education Cannondale, but didn't say who it was. We know, of course, that Veronica Ewers is going to stay with the team and we'll find out the other three riders I'm sure in the, in imminently. They also signed Naomi Ruig of Yumbo Visma, uh, Corinne Lebecki, which is an awesome signing. Nina Kessler from Jayco Alula and Megan Armitage of Arkea, the Irish rider. So they, they're picking up some really strong riders. And uh, interestingly, because of the new, world tour relegation system which i think we'll also dive into a little bit today they're starting out as a continental team they can't start out right straight into the world tour like a couple teams have done in the last couple years they're gonna have to be continental and earn the points to gain a world tour license but because of the way that women's cycling is set up it just because they're continental for 2024 and 2025 in theory uh that doesn't mean that they're not going to get into the big races i think with riders like corinne and and uh, veronica that they'll still get entry into things like the giro and the vuelta so interested to see where this team goes and who's picked up as far as management we already know that ezra trump trump is there for um manage on the management side and she's one of the riders man what are words today (laughs) she's one of the people who really made Valcar Park Hotel Valkenberg the team that it was when it built up uh Demi Vollering and Lorena Weebus and then went over to Yumbo Visma to help form that team. And I think we were all pretty shocked when she announced she was leaving Yumbo Visma earlier on this season. But an awesome get for the team to have her running running it on the management side. Like she really knows what she's doing when it comes to running a team. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I wanted to mention that Ezra Trump is part of this new EF outfit and I think, like, she's got some good uh, experience now on that other side of the fence. Like, she was a pro as well for a long time, so she kind of knows um, how it how it works on both sides and I think she's quite cluey as to how to build up a good team both from a cohesive group of riders all the way through to culture and strong management as well so you know not every rider is going to be good at management certainly only a few actually but she seems to be one of those people that is doing quite well at it and still gaining experience but um yeah I think that this could be a really fun team for the future and I'm glad that it's not a world tour team to start with I'm glad that they're kind of enforcing those rules now, even though this team maybe would deserve a world tour contract. I think it's still good because it might force them to go to some smaller races and that's where they're going to get those bigger wins and then building their confidence and building their brand. And I think overall it's really promising as a, a group and I'm really looking forward to seeing who else they sign. And I think for a rider like Corinne Lebecki, taking, um, would you say not, a slight step backwards to step forwards again is exactly what she needs um, after transitioning to a team like Tr- Jumbo Visma where she was like an integral part in a lot of the wins and successes there. But when you look at her Palmares, you know she's still, I mean, a relatively, would we say, young rider. She's got years left in her career. She's probably in the best years of her career. Um, so I feel... Yeah, it's it's a really good move for her. I think also for her going back to an American team is going to be a really good step for her career. Like she's been racing on European teams for since 2017 she signed with Sunweb. Like she's yeah. been over here for a long time and she's such a proud American and loves being home and I think being in an American team 
is going to give her a little bit, a little sense of home that she's maybe been missing being on, Dutch on Dutch teams, teams for such a long time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also think like in the same kind of in the same boat is Veronica because she's as such a fresh rider, fresh, fresh and like straight into the world tour. She had so much pressure on her this year and we could, we could see it and hear it in her audio diaries, you know? Mm. And I think going to a team that's continental is going to allow her to grow a little bit more as a rider with, she's still going to have pressure on her. Like with the results she's had, that's never going to go away now, but it, it does lighten, lighten it a little bit going this step down into the continental ranks and not going into races like the Giro and expecting to be a leader from, from the get go. I think for her, it's going to be an awesome move for her career. I'm really excited to see who they sign as a DS. They've not announced that quite yet. And Mm -hmm. that's like, yeah, that's really interesting. There's definitely some movement on the DS side in terms of, in the women's peloton so curious to see who's going where with that because it's such a massive part of the teams and we talk all the time about riders moving around but when ds's move around it's also it also completely changes the game well i'm just looking forward to seeing corinne get a bit of swagger back that was always something i liked about her feels like she's lost Mm -hmm. a bit of her swagger i want to see her moving around the bunch a bit more with that swagger back (laughs) She's got like this, she like, she wiggles her hips in this way that is just like so terrifying. Like she's so intimidating. She's tiny. She comes up to like my hip, but she's so intimidating. And I just cannot wait to see that. Like, yeah, she's got presence. I like it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. She can fit her whole body under all of our handlebars, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which almost makes her more terrifying. But it feels <laughs> it, to be a great sprinter in that year, that 2017 season where she was just phenomenal. Um, mm. The results she had that year was just, it was like her breakout year. It was like, here I am. And yeah, sprinters have to have that that swagger, like you said, Gracie, and a little bit of that ego. But the nice thing is she's just a really cool person too, so it never felt overbearing. Uh, she's just naturally cool. <laughs> All right, a couple other transfers worth noting. So Anne San Esteban is leaving Jaco Lula for a Spanish team. It's been around since 2019, but is one of the Continental teams, and she's signed through 2026 uh, to Liberal. Kutza Foundation, Uskadi. It's a mouthful. I have to admit, yeah, I I wasn't familiar with this team if I'm perfectly honest, and it was no, me neither. An and that's a move. long contract too. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I mean, we knew we were going to see a lot of movement on the Jaco Alula side of things with them kind of merging with Live and forming a development team. So we knew there was going to be a a good bit, but I. Did not see San Esteban as one of the riders that would move just because mm. she's one of their top riders. So you'd think that, I mean, I guess, I don't know if, if Mavi Garcia joining the team has anything to do with that or, or what, but yeah, kind of yeah. bummed to see her leave Jaco. Yeah. It feels like she definitely improved in the three years that she was there. Um, maybe just still hasn't fulfilled her own potential yet. And whether that is because of that team just not being quite right for her, it was probably a good move to make as a stepping stone in her career. But maybe she's just taking that mature decision and realising that despite having kind of leadership there, it's not working out for her and to try something new or to try a new combination. So, you know, you could speculate all day, like maybe she's just not happy there or it's just not working. But, you know, my assumption is that she's just realizing that her potential needs to keep being uh, nourished elsewhere, maybe. Speaking of potential, uh, Simone Boyard, the Canadian young Canadian rider, is moving to Uno X. She just won the uh, GP Odingen that was this weekend. It was postponed from the fall. Um, but she's a super exciting young rider from Canada. Um, so really excited to see her move to Uno X. And for Uno X to pick up a North American is kind of a big deal. Um, so that's a great move. Plus, they picked up Tuncha Picos. 
uh, from Yumbo Visma. So another experienced rider, like come coming from an experienced team into Uno X who are, we'll get into it in a second, but they are on the cusp of the relegation battle. So definitely need a little bit more experience on that team. I think so good for them. Yeah. And of course they're losing Hannah Barnes. So that's why they hired her to begin with, to bring that wealth of experience that she had gained from being on Canyon Shram for years. Um, and so, yeah, someone has to fill those shoes. Tiny shoes to fill. Tiny. She's, she's, a, she's a very little person. Tiny, massive. <laughs> Tiny, big shoes to fill. Yeah. Um, so speaking of Jake Olula, they picked up Mavi Garcia, obviously, Raquel Barbieri, Anna Trevisi, and Caroline Anderson, some of them from Liv. Uh, so we're starting to see kind of how that merger will take shape. And I think we'll see a lot of the riders that are currently on live kind of slot into the development team of that, of that team, but still no word on a lot of like the Aussies that are on that team and who's going to stick around. So continue, we'll continue reporting on that as the news rolls in. Um, Movistar picked up these 19-year-old twins, Spanish twins, Lucia and Laura Ruiz Perez, investing a little bit in their home country's future. Yeah, it's good. And then one of my personal favorite uh, new signings, Clara Caponi, will move to Lidl Trek. Just really exciting for, for Caponi. She's like quite an interesting rider who's she's still really young and has been on fdj for a couple years and for her to move to trek i think it's going to be an awesome uh learning experience for her to be in that environment so i'm quite excited to see what that does for her and her career i was just going to throw another question out like do you think that they will want her to develop her long term as their pure bunch sprinter because balsamo mm-hmm. is not really a pure sprinter I don't, yeah, it's hard to say like what really they're going to do with her. If they're, if they might like kind of put her in a lead out role for Balsamo. I, I know they have Alaria, but I, I think that they, they're a team that is very invested in their success, the riders that have had success in the past. So I think they aren't going to give up on Balsamo being their sprinter just yet she has sprinted to victory before, you know? Um, so I, I don't know. I'm curious to see what exactly they do with, with Capone, but I couldn't, yeah, I'm not entirely sure. Cause she's, she's a, a really, really good sprinter, but she's, she's also not like a bunch sprinter. Like, I don't, I, I wonder if her and Balsamo could make any kind of difference together against somebody like Weebus. Yeah, interesting. It's it's not a bad thing to have two sprinters anyway on a team because people get injured and sick and they'll go to different races and they'll be working together sometimes, which is also good. So mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. don't know what the uh, dynamic there is with the Italians, but they seem to pull it together pretty well at Worlds. So I think sometimes in pro racing too, they're just fine. <laughs> FTJ Suez is losing Clara Caponi, but they gained Nina Boisman. And mm-hmm. Alicia Vigalia. So two two more riders added to the FDJ Suez. And this is kind of like, I feel like this is just the beginning of the transfer market. Like we're going to see a lot more as the season progresses. It feels so weird that we've had worlds already. And like we haven't had Tour of Scandinavia's this week. We have like Tour de, Tour de Romandie still, GP de Plue. It's just so weird that we've already had worlds. I feel like we should be done for the season. I think that many writers would probably be feeling like that too. I'm sure there's going to be a few moments that people want to be uh, doing a Marlon Rusa in the middle of a race now. Mm. You know, I've all- done that and it was very, it felt great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> it's okay to just call it. <laughs> call it a day. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's been such a long, really, really hard season. It's just wild to me that we still have, like, a month and a half left. And if you uh-huh. factor in, then, like, uh, Chongming Island and Guangxi, we still have the China races, too. Oh, I feel sorry for anyone that has to go to those races. That's such a drag I out feel, of the season. 
they're actually cool places to go to. I'm not bagging out the race, but it's just like the last thing you want to do is that trip. At the end of the season, you're just like, oh, my God, I just want to go home and hang out with my people. Cat, (laughs) with your cat. With my cat, (laughs) yeah. I think they're the races that, like, if you've had – injury or illness and your season's been up and down and then you're looking for those last few race days before you go into maybe a shorter off season then it's ideal or for the riders who just simply are in teams where they just don't get raced that much they kind of get dragged into those races so and i'm curious Mm. and you hate it when i bring this up but thinking about this season and no don't do it tour de france world championships we still got a bunch of important races coming up and then of course it's 2024 next year and well i mean gracie you can probably speak to this um in 2015 you were feeling quite tired at the end of the season but you were thinking about the olympics the next year and how to qualify for that so that's something i think that will be in the back of people's minds definitely at the front of someone's mind um marlon Roos's mind i think it's a good point yeah. actually lauren points mm. points Definitely. Yeah. Um, A team like Human Powered Health is going to be sending like their top riders to to races like that just to get points. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, someone did actually ask us when I, I asked the Discord for uh, for questions for us to answer today. I Before I looked at the news and realized we actually have quite a bit of transfers and stuff to talk about, but I asked the Discord for questions and somebody asked what we think how we think Paris is going to impact the season next year. Um, and I, I said that we would probably be talking at length about this in another episode. I'm sure we, I'm sure we'll talk about it multiple times, but I think it is worth kind of answering their question just because, because we just had the world straight after the tour de France femme of X Swift. I think you can look at that and see a little bit of comparison to Paris. It's going to be, I mean, we don't, the tour is after Paris, so that is definitely going to have a, an impact on the season. The fact that we don't have the, the women's Tour de France Femme directly after the men's, instead it's two weeks later. And also I did ask, um, I did ask around while I was on the ground in France about why the women's Tour de France Femme is starting in Rotterdam and got a little bit of insight into that that the one of the reasons is just the the cycling madness of the Netherlands. It's awesome for the race to have some exposure there, but also because Paris, the Paris Olympics will have take up so many resources from France. A lot of the police and people who would be working at the race are going to have like a month off after the Olympics ends. So it was actually really, really hard for the race to get any personnel on the ground for the Tour de France Femme, interestingly. No, that's really interesting. I think uh, Matt and I, well, Matt was quick to criticize when that first was announced. And I was like, well, that's that's Throw really Matt strange. under the bus. He's not even here. To- <laughs> <laughs> no, but I was thinking I was agreeing with him. I was like three or five stages in the Netherlands. And I was like, how is this? You know, it's not a three-week grand tour. And then Gracie made some really great points. Um, and now what you said as well, I mean, money is a big thing too, right? they Rotterdam can afford to host the women's tour de France and put on a good show it's after the Olympics as well um not like you mentioned in the region of of Paris or France um and that fan base is already there you don't have to build it um particularly considering the fact that the Dutch have always had such a strong presence in the Netherlands that the fans will come out regardless even if it's not off the back of the tour de France so yeah, it all makes perfect sense now when you actually look at the reasoning instead of just jumping straight to it and going, what? You cannot do this. <laughs> I still think that the transfer back into France is going to be, will be like, rough. not super fun. <laughs> I wonder if they'll do what they've done with the men um, or was Charter it the Euro? Plane? No, or yeah. just like, yeah, it's kind of odd having a rest day after three days or something, or maybe adjusting what that fourth stage would be. Well, they um, already have two. We have a a double day, two two uh, road stages in one day already. Okay, so it's possible. I don't know. They haven't announced. Uh, yeah, we'll what, see. So. I mean, we'll see when they announce the actual the actual route and stuff like that. But I, 
I think if we look at kind of the season next year and how Paris is going to impact it, we also have to take into account that the tour is after the Olympics mm. um, and how that's going to impact the Giro. I think we're going to see a lot. We're this. It's going to be like the Giro of old where all the big names are at the Giro um, to kind of tune up their legs before, before Paris or like they're going to pull a Van Vluten who didn't go to Paris, didn't go to the Giro before Tokyo because mm. she would rather have focused training. I think it's going to be super, super interesting. Yep, yep. I just before we finish this conversation, I do wonder as well for a race like the Tour Down Under that's trying to to develop, um, how many top riders will want to be already down under in January racing? Yeah, it's already a struggle to get international riders to Aussie races, so. I think that's mm. important for points for some teams, maybe even countries, but I think that'll just be the same story. We'll just get a, a pretty good field here for those races. But um, my favourite part, especially now that I'm not racing, of Olympic years is the absolute high level of the spring classics. It's always mm. just like so supreme it's going to be such good racing <laughs> it's just like people just lift that little bit extra and you just get some really good performances so that's going to be cool you know what lauren i think we should go to tour down under hey i i will be probably either giving birth or, or somewhere in the middle of it but yes sign me up for 2025 <laughs> and actually i'm yes, considering please. going for christmas next year so that could work could just stay and then yeah. we can we'll fly down tom's can Any ask the excuse. team and also we can all meet up we can hang oh, out man, with gracie so yeah look oh it we in. could do a live podcast in a cafe in like an aussie in an aussie coffee shop we could do a live podcast yeah raise your it. hand if you'd show up to that <laughs> I hope that a bunch of people listening just raise their hand <laughs> and that they're in public. All right. <laughs> um, but yeah, we'll definitely talk a lot more about, about the calendar. I think once we have a better idea, like the UCI has announced the calendar, but I think once we, once the season's ended and we do a, an episode at the end of the season and do a little bit of a calendar breakdown, we'll talk a little bit more about what this might mean for, for the season. Some of the biggest news that come out, in the last couple of weeks that we haven't touched on yet is the UCI announced that the pro a pro team category will be added to the women's Peloton in 2025. They, they probably don't listen to this podcast, but I'm, we aren't the only ones who have been begging for three tier system. So that's awesome news for the women's Peloton in terms of development and, uh, and having, having a place for each team, um, teams like, like, human powered health that don't fit in the world tour or the continental level, um, having a pro team spot for them and also what that means for, yeah, for riders coming up and, and riders developing and the level of racing also, because having continental teams in world tour races, sometimes it works, but when it does work, those teams probably shouldn't be continental. So Yeah. Now we just need to start pushing for more non-world tour races. Yeah, I think yeah, that's, that's our next. Probably, <laughs> I I I did read this release, but it was a while ago. Now that I've already forgotten half of it, but I don't know. I think it's good, and also like not the biggest problem that they could have solved. I don't really think having an extra label is really that helpful if they don't have the races to go with it. So I don't know. I think there's definitely pros to having this extra label, but um, yeah, like I don't think it really matters if there's one tier or two tier below as long as it's catered for properly. I think the the biggest thing in terms of this is um, is that it's all, not only the world tour teams that will have a minimum salary. Uh, mm -hmm. The latest mm -hmm. cycling cyclist alliance survey that they do every a uh, couple every year. Um, the results of that kind of showed that salary is still the biggest problem when it comes to non-world tour teams. And I think one of the main pros that I see with having a pro tour category is that there will be, it, there won't be riders racing in the Tour de France Femme that make no salary. 
Like Mm -hmm. there needs to, it needs to be a system in place that like there are teams that don't have the budget or the means to be a world tour team, but they're still competing against the world tour teams. Mm -hmm. And that's not fair for the riders and it's not fair for the race because it also impacts the, the racing. So I think in this, in this sense, the reason I'm so excited about it is because I just don't think that cat, that continental teams should be allowed in world tour races. And it means that there are, there's still a pool of teams that will have riders who are paid a livable wage able to race in the races without only being the world tour. And I still think that 15 is too many teams for the women for women's world tour. Like we should have 13 or 12 until the sport builds up a little bit. And so I think like, well, I agree with you in, in that it's not, what the it's not like the number one thing that they could have done to help the sport grow it's definitely a step in the right direction and i think since they've tackled this starting in 2025 hopefully the next thing is races that aren't world tour and trying to build up build up the non-world tour calendar for continental teams because there needs to be something for them to do like there needs to be somewhere for riders to learn how to race. Yeah, I mean, you'd like to assume that that's actually what they're considering with this to to reevaluate the the calendar and adjust it accordingly. Um, mm-hmm. So you have those progressive races and, you know, as of 2025, that's also the year that the under 23s will have their first standalone event. And we're going to talk about it later, but the Tour de l'Avenir, maybe we're going to see a bit more from the, the, the U23 calendar for the women too. Um, since you brought it up, Lauren, the first ever Tour de Lavenir for the women starts on August 28th with five stages and opening ITT 14.5 kilometers long. Stage two is for the sprinters. Stage three is like a hilly stage, a little bit of a opportunistic roulette type stage. And then four and five are really, really challenging with a good bit of climbing. The final stage has 2,543 meters of elevation gain. So some five stages for the U23 women, it's the it's one of two U23 races for the women, the second of which is a three-day race in the Netherlands. And then obviously they have the European champs as well, but for for the, the world of U23 racing, they only have these two stage races. And somebody asked if, because the Tour de l'Avenir has a race for the women now, will other races start to develop for U23 women. And I think like, we probably can't answer that question, but I think we would all say that, God, we hope so. Well, I think we have to look at the under 19s um, first. And sort of, it's it's a whole development process, isn't it? If we compare the men to the women and how, um, you know, some of these professional teams have already under 19 sort of development teams, which we saw um, in the junior men's road race wearing team helmets from pro teams like Jumbo Visma and such. So to have a calendar of U23 races where I think it will be challenging is we already have these U23 riders racing as pros on pro teams is to be able to leave their team and go and race these races. Um, so perhaps this the, the U23 calendar, if there are a few more events added because we're going to have this world championship um, in two years' time, it will be yet yeah, catered towards uh, the national teams. If we look at the Aussie national team, we've got a few good U23 riders, but the the names on that roster, um, a few of them, if if people were looking at the start list, wouldn't know who those riders are because they just simply aren't on any pro teams in Europe yet. Maybe that's because they've started a bit later, or you know, as we know, moving from America, New Zealand, South Africa, Australia to to Europe as a 19-year-old to become a pro is a huge step and only a few actually make that jump successfully. Um, so I think it's like the under-23 category is important for the future, but it's mostly important for the non-European countries because it's just that extra opportunity hopefully if those federations have enough funding to send riders that don't usually race overseas for a whole season or, um, yeah, that maybe they can't really fund a proper elite national team trip, but they can self-fund or or do at least 
to Lavanier and then hopefully a couple more if it all banks up in the future. Um, Australia doesn't have a development team per se anymore. So this is actually a, a big deal for Australia to have these athletes having the opportunity to race against each other. And then on a broader brushstroke, I love that we're going to have this opportunity to have some races that we can use almost like a draft pick for the pro teams, much like the men does. And I really mm -hmm. think that that's an important place for these riders to get the spotlight and not just be getting top 20s, top 30s, top 50s and people not quite noticing their potential in the pro races. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I, it still blows my mind that there are riders that are like 19 years old racing in the world tour against riders like Anamiek Van Vluten and they're lining up in the same race, but like a 19 year old has less little to no experience in the world tour and she's just thrown in with the best of the best. And that just should not be how the sport is. Mm. In some ways, these riders are um, delaying their learning of how to win because they're yeah. just surviving. Exactly. Yeah. That was exactly yeah. what I was going to touch on. We've seen it with some very talented Australian riders over the past years that I've been in cycling, following cycling, and it's always really sad to watch because they have just huge amounts of capability and talent. But again, to take a, you know, a rider who does exceptionally well at the Junior 19s Worlds and then immediately signing them to a pro team like... Gracie said quite often they get lost in it you're on a completely different continent so you don't have that that unit around you that you need um that perhaps at home you would have that support if you're a young Dutch rider and trying to sort of navigate your way into the pro ranks so yeah it's always been a bit of a I don't know a concern for me I figured I could just bring up the relegation up uh, a relegation update because we'll be talking about it a lot in a couple weeks. So worth mentioning now, um, there are three teams that are on the edge of being demoted, and that's Uno X, Israel Premier Tech, and Human Powered Health. They're kind of just below the cutoff line of the fifteen teams that will make it into the World Tour for next year. However. Luckily for them, they have so Saratiz at WNT is technically above the relegation line, although they don't have interest in a world tour license, at least the last I heard. So even if they make it above the relegation line, if they don't have the budget, they can't fulfill the requirements and they don't have any interest, um, then they're not going to take one of those spots. There's also Jayco and Liv are both above the relegation line, but neither. But that since that team is merging, um, that opens up another spot. EF folding opens up another spot, and then the UAE development team is technically above the relegation line, but they won't be a World Tour team as they have a World Tour team already. So even though Uno X, Israel Premier Tech, and Human Powered Health um, are technically not. Um, in the 15 teams in the fifth top 15 teams in the world they'll probably be able to hold on to those licenses because of a lot of other movement with the current world tour teams um on the plus side ag insurance Sudal quick step is probably going to get a world tour license this year they applied last year but it was given to phoenix to Kunik instead so i know that that team is yeah really wants that world tour license so they'll be one of the first ones to be getting all their ducks in a row to try to get that that license for 2024 very good all right we've got i'm gonna give us 10 minutes of listener questions and then what we're obsessed with and then we'll wrap up this episode <laughs> we'll, st we'll start off with a fun one <laughs> is this the first one yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's what sort of prize would tempt you to do in a, to do a hard interval section? Prize selections not allowed as answers. Meet Taylor Swift <laughs> or money? Well, you've got that's me out then. <laughs> um, I thought this was an interesting one because uh, for me, like literally, just seeing you know when you have training peaks and you do the inter you like do the ride properly and it's green, like I would. I would do it just for the, the training peaks to be green. <laughs> like, I'm one of those, everyone is different, but I'm one of those riders that will like ride around the block until I get the right amount of time so that when I upload it to training peaks, it's green and not orange or red. 
don't know. I, feel <laughs> I like don't even remember really what don't that have... means anymore. I do, I do not need an incentive. <laughs> I don't need an incentive to do an interval session. I literally have hired a running coach because I'm like, give me the intervals. I will do them. Yeah. I did find yeah. this an interesting question because I had a feeling like all three of us actually don't need a prize to do intervals even though we're not racing anymore because we actually just kind of like it Love even it. though we don't choose to do it very often as often yeah um i don't know i i, I was kind of like it's i don't need a prize but i don't i actually don't do intervals that much anymore i was trying to think of what mine would be i don't know yeah but even when you hard. ride swift if yeah. you do Zwift and you do one of the Zwift like well, interval yeah. things, you get like a little star when you do it right. Yeah, yeah yep. definitely keen on the stars. <laughs> this, yeah. but this question also like think makes me think like whoever wrote this question in like, are you struggling? Do you need a prize to do your intervals? <laughs> and this is a good like point to make is like you got to pick stuff that you kind of like doing and it's definitely type two fun. Like no one actually loves intervals. You like how you feel afterwards generally. Uh, But yeah, you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of like when you're in the middle of an interval, of course it's hard. And sometimes you don't feel like doing the session, but generally if you like exercise, you like intervals to an extent. So it's like, how do you pick a session that you get excited about? I think that's mm-hmm. more like the answer rather than having a rule board for yourself, if that makes sense. Yeah, Lauren and I will go on and on about how much I love 4020s. <laughs> you sadistic soul. No. Um, yeah, intervals serve a purpose. And even now when you're time efficient, this is something we've chatted about, Gracie. Like I'd rather do a really short session with a bunch of intervals and then I know I've really gotten something out of it than just spinning along for 40, 50 minutes sort of thing. But that's maybe also that bit of athlete mentality that's still there that you want quality out of the session. Um, Don't have Mm -hmm. hours and hours to just ride anymore. So, um, and also the the prize is actually just completing the session at the end of the day. (laughs) Yeah. Especially I'm sure if you've got kids. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there are people out there who hate intervals and love to race. Mm. I've never met one, mm-hmm. but they exist. I've met one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he never ended up becoming that good for that reason. <laughs> Unfortunately, you kind of need to do the intervals in order yep. to get to the race. Yeah. Um, all right. The next question, what teams in the world tour Peloton are doing the best job of marginal gains on the tech front? Oof. Uh, for me, I feel like there's, there's only one answer to that and it's, Trek. and it's track and it's because they have the means to do that. Like there are other teams that have bike sponsors as a title sponsor, like Canyon SRAM, for example. But I feel like Trek has Bontrager as well in their disposal, plus their partnership with SRAM means that they they just have so much opportunity when it comes to those marginal gains on the tech side. But I think that SE works with, with mm-hmm. Specialized and with SRAM. Mm-hmm. They probably also have a really good um, pool to choose from of, of tech-y type things. Definitely agree with those two answers. And then like aside from bike specific product, I noticed that a lot more riders were wearing whoop bands on their wrists at the Tour de France Fun this year. And I like, they've been around for quite a while now, maybe like six or seven years roughly, Mm -hmm. but you didn't see too many women wearing them. Actually, I saw a lot more in the men as well at the men's tour. Mm -hmm. And I think wearables in general. also. Yeah, the the rings. rings. Yeah. I think yeah. like most people choose either of those two as like the the leaders in that wearable stuff. So like uh I would like to know the stats on what riders and what teams are paying for that and what are getting it because it's not that cheap actually to use those <laughs> those wearables. Actually, interestingly on the EF side cuz I know that they're sponsored by Whoop, so all mm. the all those riders have the Whoop bands, but they also have a partnership with this company called eight sleep um Uh, that makes a a mattress cover that tracks your sleep and it can also change temperature so 
well, my husband just bought one because he's, he runs really hot at night. And so he can set like his side of the bed to be cooling. And I set my side of the bed so that when I crawl into bed, it's warm already. Not right now because it's 102 freaking degrees in Girona, but <laughs> you can like, you can set, yeah, set like designated sides. And then whenever he's gone, he turns off his side and the whole bed becomes my side. But it's it's super cool. I feel like for him, he's using it to track his sleep and comparing it to the uh, Aura Ring. And yeah. I know that the the EF Tipco Silicon Valley Bank Riders they have the eight sleeps as well. So like they're able to do that and compare them to the Whoop and see how their sleep score is and all that stuff. Um, mm. I, yeah, I, I clicked on the link warming. to that stuff. I was on Instagram and EF did a post about it. And I was like, what's that? And I clicked through and I read all through their website. I was fascinated. I was like, oh, I, I would buy this if it wasn't so expensive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like it's hilarious because Tom's doesn't like spending money. And he was like, I really want to get this mattress cover. It actually looks <laughs> really <your> good. Sleep. <laughs> yeah. I think, and I, mean, I think I it even it. wakes you up if fair. you have a setting. It, it vibrates which yeah. sounds weird a bed the vi a vibrating bed but it's actually like <laughs> it's quite quite gentle a gentle way to wake up it's really nice mm. this podcast is not sponsored by eight sleep <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was just trying to but think if you want to sponsor us <laughs> yeah if you're listening to this podcast all right what are some of the ways that parents of the pod have introduced bikes slash racing to their children I had my five-year-old do the kids race at our cyclocross state championships and she loved it and has since been asking when she gets to race next. I have a double bike trailer to take her take out on local dirt trails. I love that. Oh, That's so wow. cute. Um, I feel like Lauren mm. and I have very little kids, so we can, maybe can't speak to introducing them to racing quite yet, but I know that Lila loves watching the races. Like she she we i we don't do screen time she's still too little to be able to watch anything but um we do watch the, the bike races when tom's is racing i have the bike races on tv and obviously all the women's races as well and so she's used to the bike races being on tv and she always loves watching it like she claps she cheers she points at the screen her favorite is elise longaborghini she always is pointing at elise longaborghini <laughs> and i'm like you got good taste, girl. <laughs> oh, um, so but also like like at the Worlds, like she was so excited to see the racing at the Worlds. Every time a group would go by, she would just start clapping. And um, so whilst I am adamant in that my child is not allowed to race road bikes, she can race <laughs> mountain bikes. That's fine. Um, it does seem I'm fighting a losing battle because she loves them going by. We we put her in a bike seat on a, on a bike as soon as it, she was old enough to be able to go in the bike seat, the forward bike seat. We have one of the Thule ones um, that's super nice, and she loves going on it. She Her new favorite thing is to wave at all the cars. As the cars goes by, she, like, waves, waves at all of them. <laughs> that's hilarious. Cute. I think uh, just the country I live in, um, yeah, living in Belgium, that's just what children do here is – not necessarily the racing side, but yeah, of course there is. We we have we're a bike racing country, but also it's just more practicality. A lot of people commute by bikes, so it's just something that becomes an everyday part of life. And like what Abby was saying, as soon as kids can basically sit in a child seat, that's the easiest way to to get around here. So for us, like uh, I love bikes, and um, you know Harry was on his little what's it called step through. Um, before he could walk, he was actually toddling along on his little bike and he's just obsessed with it. He loves his bike and he's actually, he's too fast now um, that we have to almost run. We do, we run after him, which is a bit hectic at the moment. So um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm the same with Abby. I'm like super keen for him. I don't care what he does. I actually hope he, he ends up being more artistic than anything because I certainly lack creation, uh, creativity and so does my partner. But um, cyclocross would be amazing and anything off-road. I'm not super keen on the road racing side. <laughs> well, um, I'm, not, said, I'm not a parent, but I want to chuck my two cents in when you're done. <laughs> okay. I was Yeah, I was just going to say Lila gets her first bike today. So. Ah. 
Cute. I'm excited to see excited to see how that goes. Yeah. But I have a funny story about well, it's not really that funny in the moment it wasn't at least about just like having a child seat on a bike here versus in the US. So obviously like we're our bike is in Spain, so we had the child seat on here and I'll be riding around with her like with her tiny little helmet covered in butterflies and her like cute little glasses, heart-shaped glasses. And <laughs> every single time we pass a person, they're like, "Oh my god." Like people on the side of the road just like think she's the cutest thing ever. So when I went to the U.S. in in May, I put a child seat on my mountain bike there and I was riding. I rode into town and the very first time that I rode with her on the bike seat, I was riding into town. It's like five blocks to the coffee shop. And this woman pulled up next to me at a stoplight and just started screaming at me that I was putting my child's life in danger. And then she followed me like next to me for four blocks, just screaming at me and then got out of her car when I stopped at the coffee shop and was like yelling at me about how I had my kid on the bike. And wow. I was, it was just like really a little bit traumatizing. I called my mom to please come pick us up um, or pick up Lila so I could ride the bike home without her. But yeah, really interesting mentalities. It's it's fascinating how different countries approach it. Well, oh, that would have been one awful. of the many reasons. I guess you're not going to move back there, Abby. I, just, I did, I did I cry when this happened to me. This, that sounds awful and just unfathomable now, like just particularly where I'm living. Australia, I mean, I haven't lived there for over 10 years now, but um, I'm assuming in the cities the bike culture is changing in terms of – I do follow a lot of advocacy organisations on LinkedIn, but I think definitely where I'm from on the Gold Coast, infrastructure still isn't there. My mum was even saying to me she wishes she could ride a bike because she's having issue with her feet and being retired now and walking isn't so good, but she's like, I'm just too scared to ride. Um, and I used to do it day after day and not think about it when I was training back there. But every time I do go home, I don't feel safe on the road. And that's mm -hmm. kind of sad. All right, Gracie, what's your two cents? Well, yeah, I'm not a parent, but I was a kid and I grew up riding bikes as a kid. And I, it depends on the kid, but like, Mostly it's about the social part of it. If you can make a bunch of friends out bi riding bikes, like that's going to keep you involved for a lot of kids. So like find a juniors group, um, you know, from a, a certain age that they just want to go hang out with because they're not as, um, I don't know, maybe not as mean as the kids at school. They've got a bit more in common and it's just like a fun thing. Um, and then also just up to a certain age kids adore their parents so if you can take them while you're riding too like have it as a shared activity like that's priceless absolutely priceless and then after a while they'll be too cool for you and that's when they want to go hang out with the friends <laughs> and I think another good tip to that is like if you have pump tracks um or bmx parks they're great places um for the community, um, they're generally really inclusive environments and you get people of all different ages and I, I'm a real big advocate for all cities having pump trucks. So I think that's a nice mm -hmm. way to, to introduce two wheels to, to, to little people, you know, little yeah. girls as well. They're super fun important. and easy to supervise out. Exactly. And you meet other cool moms, rad dads and rad moms. <laughs> I think that's good for listener questions. We still have some in the in the bank to get to in later episodes. We'll wrap up this episode with what we're obsessed with. And I don't know if we have the same one this week, but I'll go first. I'm obsessed with football. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that too. I think, I think we're all on that page. We're obsessed with what's been happening in women's football in Australia. It's amazing. <laughs> It's, it's amazing. It's just, I mean, the final game of the World Cup on Sunday was was a, a football game, and uh, whichever side you were cheering for, I think there was a lot of, I don't know, um, there's a lot of controversy around the Spanish coaching staff. So um, I chose to support England, but the the game that I'm truly obsessed with is the Aussie versus England game that was earlier in the week. Uh, it was just such a good game and 
like watching what the World Cup being in Australia and New Zealand has done for women's sports in Australia and the the massive amount of funding that's going to be funneled into women's sports now thanks to more interest there is just incredible so that's what that's what I've been obsessed with must be even more inspiring because you have a little girl as well so I don't know the, the, the little girl inside of me soon. was like, I tried football. I was horrible. I was really fast, <laughs> and that was it. But I had so much fun in high school playing it. Um, yeah. Yep. The games were so good. It was physical. It was serious. It was hardcore. It was amazing. And, yeah, I completely just reflect what you said, Abby, like, and being in Australia too has just been, like, such a buzz. I was in France when the the World Cup kicked off and seeing all the stuff on social media while we were working there at the tour, it, it actually gave me so much motivation working in cycling because, you know, we've been butting our hands against this wall for a long time, all three of us, as well as the hundreds of other women for a couple of decades now of showing up, um, using our media, social media platform to like keep spruiking our sport. Please, can you watch us? Please, can you broadcast us? Please, can you write about us? And it's just been like this ongoing effort for so freaking long and then to see this kind of explosion happening in in another sport but it's it's filtered across all sports it was so special and it was making me quite emotional like even at the tour and we were only in the 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 rounds at that point in the football and it just felt like we're having that moment in women's sport and sport in general so to see the the last couple weeks being back in Australia and and to see people talking about it in coffee shops and unexpected conversations that I've been having with strangers about how special it is and mostly with women, but also men too. It's just been like really heartening. And there is an injection of money coming into Australia. It looks like a lot, but it's actually going to run out real quick. So I'm really hoping that some big corporations can see the value and return on investment, something that we've talked about a lot, but I don't know, there's so many women's sports that uh, could benefit from some good cash coming from private investment and not just relying on federations and governments, because especially in Australia, that's not where the money's going to come from. Mm. Yeah. I thought it was really amazing to like have, um, Of course, it's because the Tour de France Femme was so close to the world, but to have the women's road race wrap up the super worlds for it to be the last event and close out what was the first of, you know, every four years, we're going to have these super worlds where all of the cycling disciplines to have the women's race be the cap on what was an incredible week of cycling. And then to have the entire world talking, talking about this football tournament was pretty amazing. And I think like for me, like I spent a good deal of yesterday, like researching players, which was cool to like (laughs) have a ton of women now that I'm just like, Oh my gosh, did you know that there's a girl on the Spanish team who was like one of the best runners in Spain and then was scouted by the football team. And now she's, she's scored like however many goals in this world cup or something like that. Like, I just think it's so cool. And, um, I've, I've wanted to get into football for a long time and I feel it's pushed me over the edge. <laughs> now I need to find a team to cheer for. And now you can watch it. Like you can watch the, at least I've seen on Eurosport, um, the games like are accessible. So if you want to follow that sport, it's possible now, whereas before it was, it just wasn't the case. We've, we've been, no, we've been pushing for cycling to grow in so many ways. And there's a lot of ways that, that we are behind the men's sport. But I feel like when you look at women's cycling, if you look at other women's sports, like we're doing really well. I mean, women's professional hockey basically completely evaporated in the pandemic there. They literally didn't play a game for like two years. So I feel like we're and they all, none of them are getting paid. They like all have other jobs on the side. So I feel like when you're, when you're looking at women's sport, we have a long way to go, but I, I do think that it's important for us to also acknowledge like what we do have. We talk a lot mm-hmm. about what we don't have and what needs to improve, but especially in women's cycling, like we're doing all right. Yeah. There's definitely a few 
more than a few sports that are, I don't get much at all. So that's good, good to acknowledge that. <laughs> Something I also liked just what just quickly was that the World Cup was also really good for queer visibility and that's not just important for the LGBTQ plus all of those letters community. It's it's just big good because so many people got to see these women just being themselves and being athletes and being authentic and that's really powerful as well. Yeah. Second in, second that. It's amazing. I love it. All right. Well, we're obsessed with football, but we'll be back next week to talk about women's cycling. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and thanks to you two for a great chat. Bye.